You can open your Bibles to Genesis 16, which Salal just read for us. It's on page 11 of your little blue pew Bible. And I'm going to pray for us in a second, but just want to tell you one thing. You'll, you'll notice, if you haven't already, when we're reading about the story of Abraham, in the readings right now, his name's not Abraham. It's Abram, and Sarah is Sarai. And when you hear me talking, a lot of times I say Abraham and Sarah, just so you know, it's the same person. I know you already knew that. Um, but in chapter 17, God will change their names from Abram to Abraham, from Sarai to Sarah. I just don't want you to be confused as we work through this passage today. Let me ask for God to help us. And then we'll turn to Genesis 16. Lord God, I ask that you would send your spirit upon us like fire. And that it would purify us, taking away all the dross. That we would shine like gold. Not our own gold, Lord, but your own reflection as in a mirror. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Is it ever okay to compromise? Is it ever okay to compromise? You know, to lower standards, lower your standards a little bit, to accept less than the ideal, to make concessions in order to get something done? Is it ever okay to compromise? When it comes to human plans and opinions, it's actually perfectly okay to compromise. It's actually a good and necessary thing. If we can't compromise with friends and family, whether in picking a restaurant or choosing a vacation spot, we won't be very fun to live with, always demanding our own way. And think of Congress. Rare is the bill that gets passed without some type of compromises from both sides. So when it comes to our ways and our plans and our ideas, compromise is not only okay, sometimes it's good. But when it comes to God's plans and his purposes and his ways, compromise is never okay. When we decide that we know better, that we'll do things according to our terms and compromise in regards to God's ways, not only is it not okay, but it's costly. This is the point of Hagar's story in Genesis 16. Compromise is costly. In this passage, the people of faith, they don't outright reject God or his purposes. They don't throw their hand up and say, look, I'm an atheist. I don't believe a word of it. They actually keep God and his plans up on the horizon. Instead, however, what they do do is they compromise when it comes to the way they think God should go about bringing his purposes. So for the sake of expediency on the one hand and for the sake of relieving the pain of waiting on the other, we'll see that the people of God in this passage devise a shortcut. They set out to bring about God's goals according to human plans. They want God's ends by human means. And in doing so, they must compromise, and it's costly. But this isn't the only message of Genesis 16. Through a surprising intervention of God, we also learn how God responds to the compromised, to you or me, 
when we've fallen into compromise. And we're given in this passage, as you'll see, a better alternative than trusting in our own shortcuts and schemes. We're called, and quite emphatically so, to entrust ourselves entirely to the God who hears and to the God who sees. Now this will become clear as we look at the two scenes that make up this passage. Scene one, or act one, runs from verses one through six, and it details the compromise and its costs. Scene two, from verses seven through 16, shows us what it looks like for a compromiser to be met by grace. So scene one, the compromise and its cost. Just prior to chapter 16 in Genesis 15, God has been reassuring Abraham that he'll have offspring and possess the land of Canaan. And he's done it with an exclamation point. He likened Abraham's descendants to the number of stars in the sky. And then he cuts a very vivid covenant with him guaranteeing his future possession of the land based on God's own honor. So after these fireworks in Genesis 15, the reader might expect that when 16 opens, it would do so with a birth announcement. Behold, Sarai was with child. But instead, it's delay. And now, for the first time, we're going to hear about the pain of delay from Sarah's perspective. So verse one, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now time is running out for Sarah in a way that Abraham probably doesn't feel himself. 10 years have gone by, verse three tells us, since they came to live in Canaan and still no child. Sarah has to come up with an alternative plan because God seems to be holding out on her. What this plan will entail ominously is foreshadowed in the rest of verse one. She, Sarai, had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Abraham and Sarah are well off, and in keeping with the customs of that time, a family like theirs would have servants. A matriarch would have nurses and helpers that she had authority over. It also was the custom in this setting that a childless woman could look to surrogate motherhood as a way to obtain children. So according to the laws surrounding this culture, Sarai has every right to choose this alternative. Verse two, Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, while the world at that time dealt with barrenness through concubinage and polygamy, this was not how God had designed marriage. In order for Sarah and Abraham to do this, they had to violate the deepest structure thus far in God's creation, the one institution that was made prior to the fall, marriage. And as it was designed in Genesis 2, as the very backbone of civilization, God tells us that it's between one man and one woman, not between one man and many women. But the aging couple, they're desperate, and there's plenty of cultural approval to support such a decision. And as the scene unfolds, many commentators point out 
echoes of Genesis 3, where Eve's plans and Adam's passivity create a storm. So picking up at the end of verse 2, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Just as Adam was silent, so too Abraham sounds no objections to Sarai's idea. And just as Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam, so too Sarah takes Hagar and gives her to Abraham. And just as Adam took and ate, so too Abraham indulges. And the chaos ensues quickly and all parties are involved. Hagar, victimized up to this point, worthy of all our sympathies up to this point, suddenly turns to victimizing her mistress. Verse 4, and when Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. The phrase literally means she, through her eyes, Sarai was small, pathetic. It's the image of someone turning their head back, squinting their eyes and looking down at someone. So as Hagar's pregnancy becomes more obvious and public, Rather than being occasion for thankfulness, she uses it as an occasion for pride, a chance to further humiliate the barren Sarai. Then there's Sarah. Our sympathies are with her at first. Barrenness in this cultural setting was the worst of humiliations. And as things develop, Sarah's troubles seem to double. Still barren, perhaps now she's made a grave mistake. And Abraham's affections will move from her to his new Egyptian wife, who so quickly became pregnant. So she, Sarah, suddenly turns from the victim of childlessness to blame shifting and to her own form of victimizing. Verse 5, and Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Then in verse 6, we read, Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, with Hagar. The phrase dealt harshly appeared back in Genesis 15, verse 13, where it described in a prophecy to Abraham, how the Egyptians would afflict Israelites in decades to come. Sarah is afflicting her servant. Do you see the irony here? Sarah, the mother of Israel, is afflicting an Egyptian servant. Decades later, it will be the Egyptians who afflict the Israelite servants. The Bible doesn't divide the world, friends, between good people and evil people. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn noted, which I often quote, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. There are no heroes. There are no human heroes in this story. Lastly, let's consider Abraham. His role in the scene could be defined by one word, passivity. 
He makes no objection to Sarah's plans about Hagar. Then, after Hagar has been committed to him as his wife, you see, originally, Hagar would have been under the authority of her mistress, Sarai, but she was given to Abraham as his wife, verse 3, not his concubine, his wife. Therefore, Abraham now has a responsibility for her as such. But rather than protect her, it says in verse 6, But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. He pathetically turns the woman over to Sarah's failing composure. What a mess. Why is this story in the Bible? What is going on? We should pause here to consider at this point what scene one might be teaching us. It's teaching us about the power of sin, but I think there's two ways to kind of think about that. It's, it's the power of sin as it takes on this thing called compromise. And compromise is a type of sin that leverages deception. Let me tell you three reasons how, why compromise uses, how it uses deception, how this may work in your life, why this is so deceiving. First, the sin of compromise leverages, leverages a type of deception that you might call expediency. You see, as I've said, Abraham and Sarah aren't really deviating from God's plans, are they? I mean, they, they aren't rejecting him. He said they're supposed to move into the promised land and that they would have a child. They're just kind of taking things into their own hands, but they're agreeing with him about the ultimate goal. But they're not willing to submit to his way of bringing it about. Instead, they fall into expediency. I think we know better than God. I think if we just take him off the throne at this juncture, we can get things done faster. So be careful where you're thinking about doing something expedient in your life. A second way compromise deceives is that it presents itself as something that's lawful, at least lawful in the world's eyes. According to the laws and customs of the ancient world that Sarah lived in, she had every right to do this. This was her right. Don't get in the way of her rights. And so... When we're deceived into compromising, it can happen when God's ways and plans for us are proving too difficult, and we look around the world, and we see all these other patterns, cultural customs, ways of life, and we think, gosh, every one of my friends from college is doing this. Every person I watch on TV, every professional athlete, I have a right to this, God, even my psychologist or my friends. Even my pastor, in some instances, tells me to go against your word at this point. This is my right. It's the second way there's deception here. And the third way that the sin of compromise deceives is because it works, at least in the short term. That's why people do it. It actually slakes your thirst. You, don't realize, you just don't realize you're drinking poison. So in this scene, you can imagine the couple thinking, look, I know this seems far afield from what we thought would happen, but if we do this, a year from now, we'll have a cuddly little baby that will lift the darkness of this looming absence of no child. It will make us happy. Abraham, 
Don't we deserve to be happy? Can't you hear? And he's probably thinking, we do. So this sin of compromise leverages deception. That's the first thing I think this passage is warning us of. The second thing is it's really alerting us to the fact that a little bit of compromise actually is very costly. It costs more than we bargain for. The, the things that happen in this passage end up wrecking the, all the relationships in the family. It even seems to pit people against God at one point. Sarah's telling God to judge Abraham. And then we have a woman running off. And so the, the consequences of this will ripple down through generations. So we should also be aware that when we compromise in a seemingly small thing, it can have lasting consequences. Think about this for a moment in the context of, large, of cultures or nations. When there is a large-scale compromise by a huge people group. So consider when a culture, for the sake of expediency or profit, compromises on God's desire for all human beings to be treated with honor and does something like institutionalized slavery. Consider how far-reaching the consequences are, even when that same people tries to make things right. The consequences just continue to abide. Or consider when a culture compromises on God's sexual ethics because it seems to make people happier. It seems to honor human freedom. What happens? Well, we're living in this experiment right now. It wreaks havoc on families and children, not to mention the psyches and hearts of individuals. Are our young people better off in the world they're growing up with, hypersexualized, free to do whatever they want? Of course they're not. When human beings say to God, we know better how to be happy, your plan, your way takes way too long. We're going to do it our way. When we do this, it never, ever works. That's the first point that God is screaming through the story of Hagar. It never, ever works. So for individuals here, where are you being tempted to knock God off the throne? Where are you being tempted to compromise? Teenagers, young adults, you are going to be tempted to think that God's ways are bad for you. That God's pathways for life are the opposite of self-realization, authenticity, and fun. And you will be tempted greatly to compromise. I hope and I pray that you will not fall into that deception. It is a lie from the pit of hell. Church, one of the reasons we gather every single Sunday is to help protect one another from the deception of sin. It's hard to do if you're just at home most weeks. We come together and we hear the word of God and we sing together and we look each other in the eye and we confess our sins and hopefully, hopefully through small groups, we begin to tell people about our lives. Why do we do this? Because we're called to protect each other. Because sin is really that deceptive. It tangles us up, all of us. That's why we come together. That's why we need each other. And I'm so thankful I have you to help me. So here's the main point of scene one. Compromise is costly. 
But the scene's far from over. Excuse me, the episode. Scene one ends with Hagar fleeing her mistress, but scene two begins with her out in the wilderness. She's gone a far way. She's on her own. And what I want to help us see here is how God responds to us when we compromise. We're going to see... We're going to see a great deal of compassion here that God doesn't just push us away when we get into a mess. He actually comes to help us untangle it. And he also gives us a word, a way to protect ourselves from falling into the trap of our own shortcuts. So scene two begins in verse seven, where we meet Hagar in the wilderness. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. It seems she's going home. Shur is on the way toward the northeastern border of Egypt, where Hagar's from. Where else could she go? And it isn't Abraham, the man of the house. It isn't Sarai, her mistress, that comes to find her. It's the angel of the Lord. This is the first time the word angel is used in the Bible. It could also be translated messenger. And that's exactly what's happening here. God is coming to her with a message for her. Now, who is this angel of the Lord? I'm not 100% sure. It's kind of a shadowy figure. But by the end of the scene, it seems that for Hagar, there is no distinction between the angel of the Lord and the Lord himself. Notice what she says in verse 13, or what it says. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God of seeing. It doesn't say so she called the name of the angel. So it seems that God, not in his full glory, but God is in some way appearing to her. Now Christians have wondered, maybe this is Jesus showing up. It could be. We can't be sure. But certainly this is an instance of profound tenderness because we have an Egyptian woman that nobody seems to want, who's forlorn, who seems to be not only not integral to the story, but positioned to just get in the way. We see her running off, off stage. Thank you very much. You're only causing problems. And who is it that runs after her? God. I mean, the angel of the Lord leaves his heavenly abode, treks through the Sinai wilderness to find this poor Egyptian woman. And with this, we begin to understand something of how God comes to us when we're in the mess of compromise. So what happens with the angel? Well, the angel goes on to prophesy that Hagar will come under partially this blessing that was given to Abraham. She's not gonna be the chosen line, but she's gonna have a lot of sons, or her son is gonna multiply and be a great nation. Now, there's a strange prophecy then in verse 11 and 12, where we're told that her son will be a wild donkey of a man, not, not necessarily sounding like very much of a compliment. However, However, how would you like that? You go to your parent-teacher conference and they're like, your child is a wild donkey of a man. (laughs) But actually, I don't think this is totally negative. In that context, in the Middle East, there was a certain pride in being nomadic. And what the angel's actually saying is he's saying, Hagar, your son will never bend his neck to anybody's yoke. If nothing else, he will be free. Now, he will be over and against everyone, but he will not have to submit to anyone else's rulership and his people will be large and they will be great. But what I want us to notice 
finally, the last thing to look at in the passage, where I think some of the real meaning lies, is in this phenomenon of naming. Three things are named in rapid succession. And it's in these names that God is beginning to speak to us, those of us who have compromised and don't think we have any hope, and those of us who are tempted to compromise. He has a word for Abraham, and Sarah has a word for us, a word for Hagar. So three things are named. First, Ishmael is named. Verse 11, you shall bear a son, Hagar. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. So Ishmael was a very common name then. And it means literally God hears. Now think about this for a second. Hagar's, I mean, imagine, I don't know how long it would take to get to Shur from where she was fleeing the Oaks of Mamre, wherever she lived with the family. But I think it would have maybe been weeks. And she's pregnant. I would imagine she thinks she's going to die. And she's probably crying out. She probably doesn't know who to cry out to. She's been torn from her Egyptian gods. She's not sure if the God of Abraham and Sarah really knows her. She's completely forlorn. Maybe you feel that way. This wilderness is literal, but it's also a parable. And the first thing God wants her to know is, I hear you. Your son's name will forever be a reminder every day you speak it, Hagar, that I hear you, I hear your cries. And she'll also think of this, take this child back. And in verse 15 and 16, the child's born and Abraham takes this name from her, he names him Ishmael. Now think of what this would do for Abraham and Sarah. It's a bit tongue in cheek. They've probably been thinking, well, God clearly hasn't heard our cry to have a son. So we've taken matters into our own hands. And then Hagar shows up and there Abraham is having to name this son, God hears. And God is saying to Abraham, don't you ever, ever question, Abraham, whether or not I hear you. I put them all in a bottle, every tear, Abraham. I hear you in your affliction. That's the first thing God wants to say to those of us who have faced compromise, been entangled in it, or attempted to do it. Maybe you're tempted to compromise because it's been so long, you can't wait anymore, you don't know where God is. He's speaking to you I hear you in your affliction. Two more things are named, just keeps getting better. So Hagar, in verse 13, she names God. Do you know, this is the only instance in the entire Bible where a human being gives God a name. And some commentators say, it's the only instance in ancient Near Eastern literature where God is addressing a woman by name. Now, I can't prove that because I haven't read all that literature. But I think we should just realize this is an incredibly tender and incredibly surprising moment. So Hagar now has been met by God, by this angel of the Lord. And she says, verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. She doesn't know who he is. She doesn't know what to say. And she says, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Isn't that beautiful? And then the well is named. Moses tells us what the well is. Moses is the one writing this down in verse 14. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And, and if you have a Bible, it may have a little footnote by Be'er Laharoi. Anybody got a footnote there? Follow the footnote down to the bottom. What does your Bible say? Mine says that Be'er Laharoi 
because I've forgotten more Hebrew than I ever learned. It says that Ber Laha Roy, which is Hebrew, and it means the well of the living one who sees me. So this is the second thing God is saying through this passage to those of us who face, who want to compromise. He's saying, I see you. And Hegger doesn't mean by this God is omniscient and omnipresent, the all-seeing eye. It's way more personal. She says, you notice me. And it's not just that you notice me, it's you come to help me. You know what I need. And what's interesting is the angel, it doesn't tell Hagar, just keep going. It actually says something hard. It says, Hagar, return to your mistress, Sarai, verse 12, and submit to her. I think it's verse 12. What verse is that? Verse 9, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel, of course, with Hagar, seeing her, he's not blessing the harsh treatment Sarai's giving her. I think what he's saying is, you're about to have a child, and you need to go back under the cocoon of Abraham's family so that you're safe. You have become too deeply attached to this family to reattach anywhere else. You are now his wife, legally. No one will accept you elsewhere. And you are with his child. Go back. He will care for you. So the, the angel is sending her back to submit to that family. And she says, you are the God who sees me. You know, I think this is one of the most important things a person can come to know. Is that God notices you. This isn't just a throwaway Hallmark card. This is the first time God's named and the only time he's named by a human in the Bible. He sees you. James Montgomery Boyce was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, near where I went to college. And he writes of this scene. I really like this. He says, God sees you as you really are. He sees you where you are. He sees where you have come from and where you are going. He sees what you need and what you do not need. And he sees what he wants to make of you and how that final glorious product is to be achieved. You cannot see it. But it is precisely for that reason that you must lay your own wisdom aside and return to the path God has given you to walk in. You know, I can't help but see parallels between this intimate scene and a scene that happens at a well, also with a woman who's not an Israelite, also with a woman that's come upon hard times that comes up in the Gospels. In John 4, Jesus, God in the flesh, coming from heaven, of all the places he can go, he walks through Samaria and he comes to a well in the middle of a hot day just to meet a woman who is about as beat up as you can get. And he comes to her not with a simple word dismissing any sin or any bad lifestyle, but not with a word of condemnation. He comes to her with living water, exactly what the God who sees is bringing to Hagar. He's saying, go back inside my family, go back towards the covenant people and drink. I have come to give you living water. The whole world would cast Hagar off at this scene, but not God. We see the gospel here. 
What in the world is God doing chasing down this seemingly meaningless Egyptian girl? She's not necessary for the plot. As I said a moment ago, she'll only get in the way. But this passage, along with revealing to us the cost of compromise, even more so reveals to us the depth of God's compassion. He will not cast you off. No matter what mess has been made in your life, because of a compromise, he will come find you. No matter how big of a mess your culture has made over decades or centuries, he will not cast his people off. He comes to us with living water to slake our thirst. And he says to us through this passage, and he says to you who are weary, who are tired of waiting, who want to seek another way out, he says afresh, afresh, trust me, I am the God who hears you. And I am El Roy, the God who sees you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that not even your family is perfect. They're a mess in this chapter, Lord. And that gives us a lot of space to pull up to the table with our own mess. Because we see that you are a God who moves with compassion and grace. So please cover our church now, Lord. Where we are compromised in any way as a church, please correct us. Where individuals may be compromising, please gently bring them back. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.